Well, do take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 16. If you've been watching carefully, you'll know that uh, over the winter, actually starting last fall, I think, uh, a team of us, uh, ministers and interns, were preaching through the book of Romans, and uh, we finished, but we finished at chapter 15, the end of chapter 15. So chapter 16 is a bit of an orphan. You just hate something just being left there up in the air, uncommented on and unexplored. So that's why we're going to do this over the next few weeks. And um, what I've done is I've taken uh, Dr. Boyce's uh, commentary, and he's divided chapter 16 into several parts. I'm going to follow the parts that he breaks it down into. And this morning, the first part, he breaks it down into two verses. <laughs> Typical. Uh, uh, two verses. The first two verses of, uh, of Romans chapter 16. So let's hear the Word of God as the Apostle Paul speaks to us and to the church of Rome. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Cancrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we know when and where Paul wrote the Roman Christians. It was the year 57 when he'd spent three months in Corinth living in the home of a friend called Gaius. Uh, He arranged for the letter that he'd written to Rome to be carried there by an influential woman who was also a deacon in nearby Kenchkria, which was the port city uh, of Corinth, and was a church plant from the mother church there in Corinth. Paul, at this stage, is in his early 50s, He's been a Christian and an apostle for about 25 years, and he wants to visit Rome. Christianity had come to Rome very early. In fact, in Acts 2, we read that pilgrims from Rome heard the gospel as Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost. The majority of those first Christians who went back to Rome from Jerusalem, of course, were Jews. That's why they'd gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in Rome, back home in Rome, they kept up their associations with the synagogues and with their businesses, which were tied in with the synagogues, as well as having their own Christian gatherings, their small gatherings. In the year 49, in the year 49, (laughs) when the sound went off, in the year 49, Uh, Jesus, uh, sorry, Jews were banished from Rome uh, for rioting. What did they riot about? Well, it was said that they rioted at the instigation of one Christus. We've no doubt that that was a reference to Christ and therefore Christians, and that the Jews in Rome had a clash perhaps with the Jewish Christians or maybe more likely with the Gentiles who'd become Christians. And the emperor, Claudius, uh, responded by evicting them all, just sending them all back, including Aquila and Priscilla, who are mentioned 
here. Now, those Christians that stayed in Rome and that were not subject to Claudius's expulsion were Gentile Christians, Gentile Christians. And by the time the Jewish Christians returned to Rome around the year 54, 55, they found themselves to be no longer the majority in the Roman church. They were the minority. They felt themselves self-consciously to be at disadvantage when they came back. Here they were, they come back to their own little churches, but their own churches have grown, they've added new members, and they're all Gentile believers. They're believers, but they're Gentiles. And so they have that problem to deal with, of the problem of the fact that they better not get into a fight with their Gentile Christian friends because they were under suspicion by the powers that be. They'd caused a riot several years before. They knew they were under suspicion. And so they're anxious not to provoke strife. And there were these tensions between the Jewish and Christians and the Gentile Christian groups. I mean, we tenth, we don't know anything about tensions among us. I mean, we're, we've never experienced this, so we just have to imagine this, okay? Uh, so there are these two groups. There's tension between the two groups. Paul is concerned that he should consolidate them and unite them. And that's really been the reason for some of the teaching that you've had from chapter 12, where Paul is trying to reconcile the weak and the strong, that is, the, 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 Jew, the Jewish believers who are still tied a bit to the law of Moses and haven't woken up to the fact that they're in the new covenant and issues of Sabbath and what you do in the Sabbath and all that emerged. Well, you could drink wine or no wine or whatever it was, all that emerged and are dealt with in chapters 14 and 15. And Paul addresses the impulse of those who are more legalistic to judge those who aren't. And he deals with the impulse of those who aren't and who enjoy their freedom in Christ to look down on and disparage those who are. And Paul deals with all of that in chapters 14 and 15. And now as it comes near the end, his great goal is that they should enjoy, uh, be of one heart and one mouth, that they should magnify and glorify the God of Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, together he urges them to welcome one another later on, and he urges the congregations there, the little mini congregations there in Rome, to focus on the main things, things that are most surely believed among us, to make room for, he's already taught this, for the consciences of those who feel their they have Christian freedom in Christ, and not to allow secondary or disputable matters to divide them. And we still have to do that today. We're still working on those kind of things today. We still have the task of being a people with uh, a common faith and hope, despite differences of one kind or another that they were experiencing then and that we might experience today. Now, this is where then Phoebe makes her entrance. Here she is. She's a Gentile. Her name, Phoebe. She's named after a pagan god, like Diana of the, of the, uh, of the Greeks. And uh, Phoebe was converted. And Phoebe is sent by Paul to Rome. And I want to just unpack the ways in which she's sent. 
I want to say, first of all, that she's sent to Rome as a courier. She's sent as a courier. The very first clue to this is in the first word, really. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. In the first century, it might surprise you to discover that in the Roman world then, there was quite a lot of traveling, traveling that went forth, back and forth. Uh, the seaway, the, Mediter- the Mediterranean, uh, was always full of ships going from A to Z and picking up cargoes, and on those cargo ships there'd be room for passengers, and they would make their way back and forth. And often businesses required that you had to make a visit one way or another to some place that was a source of some fabric or, or other for the business that you had, and you would have to go there. And, and making connections was not, was not as easy then. And so what you needed to do, was there anybody you knew, was there a friend you had who had, who had business dealings where you were going and knew people there? Could you write a letter of commendation that you could carry with you so that they knew, know, knew that you were... That you were uh, only up and up, and you could use those friends and acquaintances of your friend as a way of getting entree into the place where you were going. So there were frequent uses of letters of recommendation. In fact, that word to commend becomes a, a, a key word for that kind of activity. Uh, in Acts 18, for example, Priscilla and Aquila, having trained a young man called Apollos, in the Word of God, believe that God has equipped him to become a minister, and so they sent him off, and they give him a letter, a letter of commendation for the disciples where he's going, commending him as someone that they should take in and listen to. And what we find about the early Christian churches is that they communicated by the same means. They would take and receive letters of communication between them. And the remarkable thing is, although we find that this is going on in the first century, this is still the way churches do their business today. If you go and join another church and you tell them you want to join their church, they will write to us for a letter of recommendation. And letters of recommendation and transfer are going back and forth all the time, all throughout the world. They do it in Britain, they do it in France, they do it in China, everywhere you go. It's still going on to this day. It's remarkable, isn't it, that that tradition was beginning here in, in Romans chapter 16. And in dealing with other subjects, the commendation of someone near the end of a letter would usually signify that the person is the bearer. That's why Paul recommends Phoebe to the saints in Rome. He names her first. He confirms her as being his courier. Uh, Paul must have trusted her a great deal to put her in charge of delivering this letter. The commendation was meant to save the church from being deceived by charlatans. And so opening with this technical language here of commendation, putting her first before greeting others points to her as the bearer, the reader, and the first expositor of Paul's letter to the Romans. Don't get too excited about that word yet. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Listen carefully so that you don't think I've said what I haven't said. In other cases of 
sending letters of recommendation in the New Testament. We find, for example, Timothy, Titus, being doing that to the Corinthians. Tychicus taking letters to the Ephesians and to Colossians. Epaphrodites taking one to the Philippians. Silvanus to the congregations of Asia Minor. Paul, when he sends those letters off, gives them to people who are not officials in the church. I mean, when, when Timothy does it, for example, he's not an official. He's not a pastor in the church anywhere yet. Yet. And Paul will often send those people. And, for example, he says about Timothy, Timothy will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. So, Timothy will not only read the letter to you, but Timothy will fill in the blanks. So, let no one despise him, he says. Tychicus, on the other hand, a beloved brother and a faithful minister, he will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. In other words, at each of these gatherings, and by the way, the Apostle Paul here realizes, as we'll see next time, that he's writing to a group of churches in in Rome, you can hardly call them churches. They're small assemblies of people meeting in homes, in private homes. There are no church buildings. It's another 300 years until they get church buildings. And uh, so they're, they're small groups of people. But Paul, Paul is writing this, and he's, a, he's organized it such a way that he wants all of these small groups to be gathered together in one place to hear this letter being read to them. So, Phoebe turns up, and she is to read the letter to the congregation. Now, here's here's the hurdle that she has to get over. These people do not know Paul. And you know when you get a letter from someone that if you know them, then you know how to take turns of phrase— You know what they mean when they say a particular thing, which could be taken perhaps several ways. And if you're having this thing read in public, there are bound to be places where, is Paul aiming that at us? Or what does Paul mean when he says? I mean, Romans is very complex. And her job was simply to make it less complex for the people to whom she is speaking. Now, what is she not doing? She's not preaching. She's not preaching. She is taking a text, and the text, by the way, comes from the Apostle Paul. The authority here lies in the Apostle Paul. The text is an authoritative document. It's the Word of God. And she is explaining to the church, so that they can understand how Paul addresses things, and so that they can understand. In other words, what she's doing is she's acting as a catechist, catechizing and and being a catechist, something that any Christian can do. You can do it on a one-to-one. You meet someone for coffee and you're going through a book, perhaps, or you're going through a part of the Bible, and you can talk about the text with them. You can tell them what you know about the text. 
That's not preaching. It's telling them what you know. Or if you're using a book that's been written by somebody that's authorized by the church in, in that sense, a quality, quality material here, then you're using the book as the authority, and you're just helping your friend understand what has been written there. That was what Phoebe did. She is a courier. The second thing about Phoebe is she is a sister. She's a sister. Paul calls her our sister. And you may glide over that, because, but that's not insignificant. You see, there are many, many instances in the ancient world of religious associations. Those religious associations had both men and women in them. And as you look into these religious associations, pagan gatherings and so on, you'll find the regular use of the masculine adelphos, that is brothers, to describe everybody of, of the members there. This is in spite of the fact that huge numbers of women were dev- devotees to these pagan gods. About a third of the followers of the goddess Isis were female. And yet the feminine was never used. And what the scholars have discovered is that the feminine, Adelphe, sister, is very, very, very rarely used in a pagan context. In fact, this particular designation used of a woman fellow believer within the Christian church seems to have been particularly characteristic of Christianity only. The use of this word seems to have been almost exclusively used by Christians of their sisters in Christ. So Paul, when he's writing about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking about the marriage of believers. He talks about a brother and sister getting married. That's particularly characteristic. What, what, by calling them that, what is he saying about them? He's saying that they are believers in Jesus Christ. And they're becoming spout, they're brother and sister in the church and their spouses in marriage. James can express concern for a brother or sister who may be experiencing hardship. So we should respond to that. In his letter to Philemon, the apostle greets Apphia, our sister, both in Philemon and here in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. The Greek word, the the Greek reads like this, uh, sister of us, our sister. In other words, she's the sister of the church, in the church. It's a kind of international brotherhood and sisterhood that exists in Christ. And being a sister marks Phoebe out as a believer, one who shares with other believers this new relationship in Christ, that we are all spiritual siblings in the family of God through Christ in the Holy Spirit. And all of us pray together as siblings with Jesus as our elder brother, our Father, who art in heaven. She's a courier, and she's a sister. 
and she's a deacon or a deaconess. The word uh, that's used here is the feminine word for deacon, deaconess. Leon Morris in his commentary says, this is not being used in a general sense. This is an official title. Now, this word diaconus can be used of everybody in the church, service, general service in the church. Leon Morris says, I don't think it's being used in a general way here. It means somebody who ministers. That's why ministers of the Word are deking the Word. This is a thing we have to share, to share. Let's read John Calvin. What does John Calvin say of this verse? John Calvin writes this. He, Paul, first commends Phoebe on account of her office. For she performed a most honorable and a most holy function in the church. And he goes on to say this. As then she was an assistant minister, servant, deaconess, one who ministers of the Cancrian church, he bids that on that account she should be received in the Lord. And Calvin applies it like this. It behoves us to embrace in love all members of Christ. We ought surely to regard and especially to love and honor those who perform a public office in the church. Calvin is calling her role a public office in the church. Now, at one level, of course, every Christian serves. We all minister to one another in the body. That's basic. But Paul is not talking about serving and ministering in general. Look at the language that he uses. She is a deaconess of the church in Cancrea. That, by the way, this is what makes this very significant. That is the first use of the word church in the entire book of Romans. The first use. The other uses follow this. So this is the this is the earliest historical reference to such a ministry in the church. I mean, Paul uses language. He calls himself a deacon of the body of Christ. The church of in Colossians chapter one. He's meaning by that a servant. And so Paul sees her as a servant of the church, just as he and his colleagues were. Now, one of the things we need to recognize, and Dr. Boyce makes this clear, is that by this stage, of course, offices as we understand them are not as firm, there's more fluidity in the church than there is and will be later on. It's also true to say that I think you and I are exposed to traditions that have crept into the church in order to mask the practices of the early church. And there are, by the way, hints of that even in this text, as I will show you in a moment. Later on in his life, the apostle spells out the only limits, the only limits that can be set on the role of women in the church. I'm quoting Dr. Boyce. The only limits that can be set on women in the church 
are the authoritative teaching and authoritative discipline position in the life of the church. In Presbyterianism, that, that functions through the elders in general and through the teaching elders in particular. Dr. Boyce puts it like this, aside from that restriction, there is no office or service in the church in which women may not perform. So women can teach as catechists. They can teach boys and girls and men and women about the faith that we hold just as anybody else can. That teaching is not the kind of teaching Paul has in mind with authority, from a position of authority called by the church. I mean, when you call a minister, you call a minister to preach the Word. That's what you call him to do. His business is to shape the way we think about the Scripture. That's a big part of his business. And he's to be held accountable by the, to the other elders for that. He can't go off down a little passageway on his own. If he does, he'll be rebuked by his fellow elders. That's appropriate and right. But there are all kinds of other areas and settings in which, as uh, Dr. Boyce says, uh, men and women uh, can teach like in, in adult and children's Bible schools and so on. But there's other things. There's what Calvin refers to as the diaconal work that men and women can do. Just as the poor were supported, this is Calvin, from the public treasury of the church, so they were taken care of by the older women, those older women who wished to consecrate themselves wholly to God by religious duties. Those women were therefore received into this office as those who were wholly given up, giving up themselves to become bound to their charge in a manner just like the Apostle Paul himself. So we're thinking of an office here. At least it will become an office as things progress. And you can see that once you look further, deeper, uh, further on, uh, rather, years have passed from when Paul is writing to the Romans, and you come to 1 Timothy, which is about office in the church. That's where, for example, Paul says that uh, the women should not have the office of authority, authoritative teaching, and discipline in the church. It then goes on to talk about the qualifications of elders and deacons. Now, let me read to you what it says. Deacons, likewise. No, first of all, if anyone aspires to the office of an elder, an overseer, uh, he, he must be X, Y, Z. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, all of that. The deaconesses, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be, that's a male form, the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. Now, in the ESV, it says, their wives, not the women. The word there 
is not there, it's not even present, I mean, in the Greek. It's supplied. In other words, this is an interpretation, and it's not an ancient interpretation. Look at the word that follows. The women likewise. What's he been talking about? Deacons. Likewise must be dignified. What has he just said? Deacons must be dignified. The women likewise must be dignified. Talking about their character qualifications and so on. Anyway, you can work away at that by yourselves. But I think the, free, the, uh, the outcome of it is, as Dr. Boyce says, a group of women in the church who use their gifts and their calling to serve the church alongside the deacons and under the oversight of the elders. We know that there were women who followed Jesus, remember? We read about them, certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Trusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who ministered to him out of their substance. Origen, one of the early church fathers, many women were ordained into the church's ministry by the apostle because they helped in many ways and by their good services deserved praise even from the apostle. Chrysostom, the great preacher, Paul mentions her before all the rest and even calls her his sister. It's no small thing to be called the sister of the apostle Paul. So Phoebe then is the first recorded deacon, deaconess, in the history of Christianity. And that word church there draws an ancient testimony uh, from the Greek use of ecclesia, the word for church, to denote this, the assembly of Israel, the assembly of Israel, the people of God. What Paul writes here, he uses the feminine word for the diaconess, and he says, being a deaconess of the church, that makes it a definitive office alongside those others that we've mentioned, the deacons and the elders, with a different purpose and a different service. And you know, Christians generally are called to serve one another in love. That should be kind of basic, really, for, for anything else. You, a man says he wants to be a minister. Well, look at him. Look, does, he serve, does he serve in the church? I mean, not just serve when he gets to speak. I remember when the deacons in my home church uh, <coughs> called me in, and uh, they asked me if I had a sense of a call to be a minister. I said that I, I had, and I gave my reasons. And, and, and I said I would like to know what they thought. And I always remember a response because I'm sitting there thinking, when are they going to get to talking about something that has to, anything to do with being a minister? They said, we always notice if you get down early, you put the chairs out. And you put them away again at the end. And that you're always the first one to go into the kitchen to help wash the dishes after a church supper. I didn't tell them. I went in there so I didn't have to 
make conversation with people because I was overcome with shyness. <clears throat> but the point being that, you see, they were looking for more than just the fact that I wanted to preach. They were looking to see whether I was a server, helper. And that's true for everybody. We've all got to be like that, ready to do anything. And, you know, one of the wonders of Tenth is that we have followed Paul's example. And in our church here, we have a diaconate that consists of men and women, deacons who've been ordained, women who've been appointed because they've been recognized and they've been welcomed and they've been received by the church. And we, we honor them in the Lord for the work that they do. We've, we see them do the work. And we, the office follows the work that they do. You see, get, getting office in the church is not a prize, not a pat on the back. Getting an office in the church is not promotion. Getting an office in the church is when we see people doing the job and we say, you're acting and doing what elders do or what deacons, how deacons deek. And we're recognizing it. Straightforward. Well, I need to finish. <clears throat> I need to finish, uh, and I'm going to finish with the last thing that she's called, and that is a patron. She has been a patron of many and of me also. <clears throat> this word patron's an interesting word. It's a good word, actually. That's a very good translation. So, praise where praise is due. It means a benefactor. <clears throat> this was a wealthy woman, a woman of some standing. She was going to Rome already, perhaps on business. There's indications there, in fact. I, I won't take the time to go into it, but there's a, a word that's used here, pragmati. And that word is often used in legal circumstances in the first century. This woman may be a, we, we would maybe call her a lawyer. Or she was a businesswoman who had legal issues that she had to deal with there in Rome. Rome is the capital. She was going there, and she had these things to deal with. <clears throat> and that's why Paul says, give her as much help as you can. You know the local situation. You know the right people to contact. You may have contacts she can use locally. You, you know the political structure, what's going on politically within Rome at the moment. What should she avoid? Where, where should she go? And so on. That was the kind of help that she needed. She also needed help with hospitality, finding somewhere to stay and so on. You could help in that way. And she had been a patron of many, Paul says. You remember those women who followed Jesus? We're, we read about this in the gospel. They, they bankrolled Jesus and the disciples and the work that they did. They followed and they, throughout the whole ministry of Jesus, they paid the bills. They used their wealth for the kingdom. We have people in our church who do that. Some of you here do that. You do it quietly. You do it unseen. But you do it generously. You do it from your heart. You're a donor. You're a benefactor. You give of what God has given you, and you give it to Christian work. God knows that. And we honor that. We don't know everything you do, but we want to honor you this morning. 
as we, as we hear Paul honoring Phoebe. She's been a help to so many people, including me myself, Paul says. It's good sometimes to pause <clears throat> and this morning to honor those women that are our deaconesses. I would ask them to stand up, but they'd kill me. But we honor them, and we honor those who are our patrons. And we know that God honors that. And on the great day, Jesus himself will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with us today. We pray that that you would bless your word to our hearts and that you would apply it to our minds as well as to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.